and welcome to Roots in Graffiti, a short chat diving into the happenings of Jasper County, Indiana. Episode topics range from project announcements to conversations about rural issues. Hosted by the Jasper Newton Foundation and Jasper County Economic Development Organization, together we'll explore and break down what's happening right here in Jasper County. I'm Brian Hooker with the Jasper Newton Foundation. And I'm Stephen Eastridge with the Jasper County Economic Development Organization. Welcome to Roots and Graffiti. Joining us on the podcast today is Don Mackey, who leads E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, a new initiative with Network Kansas to build sustainable entrepreneurial ecosystems across North America. Don has over 40 years of community economic development and policy experience. He was most recently the co-founder and co-director of the National Center for Rural Entrepreneurship. Through his work, Don helps communities and regions throughout North America grow entrepreneur-focused economic development strategies. Don calls Nebraska home, and he's a proud resident of America's Great Plains region. I want to say thank you, Don, for joining us today, because I'm glad, we, I'm glad I found you wandering in the universe of community foundation space, sharing about um, entrepreneurs and rural uh, community growth and development. That's a pretty uh, niche concept that I, I've only heard in states like Wyoming and Nebraska, to be honest. So um, when I, I meet those lovely folks um, out in, in the middle of Indiana, I was like, we have to talk to Don, Stephen. We have to talk to Don Mackey. We have to. So thank you for joining us on our podcast. No, I'm, I'm honored. And, and uh, you know, after entrepreneurship, community philanthropy is a uh, passion of mine, you know, we've been doing the transfer of wealth research. We've done, what, three studies for Indiana over the years. So uh, big fan of community foundations, place-based philanthropy, and the role in communities. So uh, uh, anyway, no, I'm, I'm delighted and looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot here to unpack. I think we're both really excited to, to get going. It's nice to know that we're not the only nerds about real places too. It kind of feels confirming of all the heart that's in this at what we do every day. So Don, can you share with us a little bit about, just a little bit about your experience, which I think you shared with me was about 43 years or more and where you find yourself now with E2 and the work that you're doing there. Well, I grew up in a family of small business owners in rural Nebraska and, uh, uh, still claim the places where I grew up as a small child, a community of about 4,000. And then I went to high school in a somewhat larger community as, as hometowns. And, uh, you know, just felt a real passion that every community should have an opportunity to be successful. And uh, not sure when I started out, that's where I intended to go, but I ultimately settled into doing rural community economic development work became really interested in how do we build more diversified, successful economies so people have choices uh, to do better in rural communities. And of course, along the way, got interested in community philanthropy as a way to bring new capital, stable capital, local capital that um, could support community betterment work. And so, over those years, I've done a number of different things. I've worked for a governor for eight years, uh, worked in the legislature for a short decade, uh, had a for-profit consulting business, non-profit consulting venture. Uh, but one way or another, I've always worked with uh, rural communities, primarily in North America. So talk about entrepreneurial ecosystems for just a second. 
Sure. Well, I mean, if you think about it, let's use some analogies. Our school system, it, it by its very name, it's a system, and, and there's a certain logic to it. You, you start when you're young, uh, you acquire certain basic skill, you then have the opportunity to pursue post-secondary education, either, you know, uh, a degree or uh, maybe a vocational skill or what have you. It meets a whole set of needs that allows a young person to ultimately achieve their dreams and succeed. At least that's the intent. But it's comprehensive, it's complex, and by and large, uh, in most places, it works pretty well. Well, the same is true with entrepreneurs. I mean, the end game is to create entrepreneurial ventures that can contribute to our economy. But at the end of the day, we're working with people, uh, a form of creative talent. We call them entrepreneurs. They're trying to figure out how to either start that business or grow that business. And they have a whole set of needs. And so, you know, the obvious things are access to capital, maybe some technical assistance, but it really goes much deeper than that. Um, you know, if they're in a growth mode, chances are they're going to need one-on-one mentoring uh, that can help them not only deal with getting past the idea that hiring employees is scary, uh, working with uh, maybe LLC angel investors is, is something they have never done and, and they may need to do. But it also, if you think about the ecosystem, gets into the personal side of this. How do they maintain life balance uh, so that they don't destroy their family or their health? And so the ecosystem hopefully is capable of not only stimulating that entrepreneurial behavior that's uh, with people in every community in America, but it's there to help them meet their needs and opportunities at the right time so that they can continue to progress in their journey in uh, creating and growing that venture. Awesome. Don, in your opinion, just your experience, why do you think there's a gap in rural communities in having entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial activity, and we see so much more of it in sort of more densely populated areas, and why is it impacting rural communities so much? Well, I think there's a couple of answers uh, based on our experience. Um, first of all, uh, Andy Stolt, the Kauffman Foundation, which is one of the leaders in entrepreneurship in the country, uh, uh, you and Marion Kaufman was a remarkable entrepreneur, created Marion Labs, and then created the foundation. But Andy always says every community has entrepreneurial talent, but not every community has the same kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem. So again, kind of drawing on an analogy, you've you've got the raw talent. Maybe it's a smaller place, so you've got fewer people than you would in a larger place like Indianapolis. But if we use an analogy of a school system, a good school system versus a weak school system. The kids that go to the good school system are going to have a much better chance of going on and pursuing uh, their careers than a school system that's really weak and doesn't give them the basics that they need to, to succeed. The same is true with the ecosystem. And so that's why the ecosystem is so terribly important because it's going to allow that raw talent to say, I can do this. And over time, develop those skills, those comfort levels, uh, that ability to take on risk, uh, to move an idea forward. The other factor is, and this really comes down to what's been happening to rural America for a long time, and that is, you know, sometimes we talk about the brain drain, and I, I, I kind of 
Well, I don't kind of, I really do disagree with that terminology because I don't think the best and brightest mm-hmm. are leaving rural America. Some are. I think what happens is we are tending to lose our risk takers. And in terms of entrepreneurial skill sets, having that aptitude for understanding, managing, getting comfortable with taking risk is really important. And uh, that's the that's the population we've been losing now for decades. Um, And they've been going to urban centers where they thrive. And that's why reversing uh, the migration trend is so important. So as Mm -hmm. 30-year-olds are now coming back to rural America, as younger uh, baby boomers are coming back to rural America, uh, both of those groups represent huge entrepreneurial opportunities for us to kind of bring that risk-taking uh, DNA back into the community. And so, you know, th- that would be a couple of reasons why we don't see the same level. I mean, clearly we're not going to have the same number of uh, high-growth entrepreneurs that you would see in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's just such a rich, dynamic environment. It's attracting entrepreneurial talent from all over the world. But that's not to say that we don't have the talent to really grow a a much better and more dynamic economy uh, through this kind of um, uh, development strategy. I think COVID-19 has taught us a couple of things in that we are going to have to take risks to continue our economic growth. And um, we're also going to have to, if we are not the risk takers ourselves, we're going to have to be supportive of that as well in different ways that we have um, resources or educational opportunities or those things. So it's knowing that we do have individuals moving back to our community. I mean, we see them all the time um, coming back to start something here, mostly for family reasons, but we want to be, we want to be a, a soft landing, I guess, for those, those people. No, I was, I was just going to share that um, a, a great story. One of my favorite communities that we've worked with for over 30 years uh, early on made the commitment to hire a business coach to work with local entrepreneurs. And there were these three young men in the community and uh, the superintendent of schools um, had made the comment that they were either going to do something remarkable or end up in prison. I mean, they just were not (laughs) suited to be in high school and that environment, uh, but very creative, uh, very passionate when they were focused on the right thing. And I think it speaks to this idea of taking risks that you just mentioned. In that particular case, the community said, well, let's, let's see what they can do. And what's interesting, I just circled back with the community. It was one of the first entrepreneurial uh, deals that the community did. They invested in these three young men. Uh, That business is still thriving today, uh, employs about 30 people. It has customers in about a 12-state region. But, But that meant the community had to take a risk and kind of move beyond that bias that, you know, these are troublemakers. Why would we ever lend them money? Why would we ever support them? But you know, I think that's what we have to do is meet people where they're at. They've got to prove up. They ultimately have to make this happen. But are we willing to give them a fair shake, even though they may have some demerits in their background? Right. I, what I hear from that, those people that are willing to take risks, um, we can't. It, so it's not John Wayne 
Yeah. You, you know, entrepreneur. It's not pull your own bootstraps up. You should know how to run a business. We're just going to sit here and watch you either sink or swim and just stand by. Like we, our rural community needs to be in that. You know, that take a risk along with and be supportive there. So yeah, gone are the days of John Wayne. Start your own business. Yeah, that's a real myth that just isn't supported by the experience. Uh, if you have a strong mm-hmm. ecosystem. And if people are willing to take advantage of mentorship, uh, financial packaging, those kinds of things, you're going to have far less failure. I mean, there's going to be failure, but it's not going to be catastrophic failure where somebody goes bankrupt and can't pay people. They may stop and start a new business later on. Yeah, that really speaks. It's like having a supportive family. You're going to screw up, but if you've got a supportive family, they're going to give you a chance to kind of get back on your feet and get going forward again. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 I, I don't know if we've sort of danced past this part of it, but it just seems to me, you know, thinking about, you know, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers who have left the community, ones that come back, you know, I, I see this friction in our communities. And I think in some of your notes, you kind of talk about this, where when these risk takers leave, what's left our, our conservative, our ultra-conservative portions of our population, right? And so those people ultimately grow up and become elected officials. They become, you know, important people in the community. And what that means is that we ultimately don't have risk-takers in positions to help those people come back and succeed in our communities. And I was just, you know, thinking about that curious what your thoughts are on, on that, how communities overcome that, and what we can do sort of acknowledging it, seeing it, and start preparing to fix that. And, and, and I don't mean like wide sweep, you know, sweeping like changes to our elected officials, but start grooming our elected officials to make them more risk adverse, make them more understanding of the types of risks we need to be taking to move forward, how we can start, you know, even grooming our community to be accepting of those risk takers as they come back in. I, that just seems like a nat- natural friction. Yeah, no, I and I think in, you know, framing your question, you you gave probably what would be my first answer, and that is the community being willing to step back and say, this is, this is a reality, and we need to be open to it, mm-hmm. and we need to deal with it. Um, I think that's the start, um, and, you know, if you buy into the theory that the folks we've been losing uh, ha- tend to be this kind of risk taker, which is Again, by risk taker, these are not people that are just jump off the face of the earth. They're good at perceiving and managing risk, and, and they're more tolerant of it. It doesn't eat them up alive. So I think acknowledging it, number one, and acknowledging that there's this uh, un, you know unconscious bias that uh, even though we're there to help folks, we don't want to take any risks. And the fact is, if you're trying to create ventures, a stronger economy, there's inherent risk and, and communities and entrepreneurs can get better at managing that risk so it doesn't become catastrophic. But I think a testament to that is all over rural America, we have hundreds of millions of dollars in revolving loan funds mm-hmm. that simply aren't being revolved. <laughs> and, and that speaks to the fact that those loan committees just are not willing to move into that gap financing arena where they ha- they're making unsecured gap financing available to help make a bank deal work to get a business going. I don't think any of these things are 
uh, barriers you can't overcome, but you have to say we need to create pathways for people to be successful as entrepreneurs, which means we as a community in that ecosystem have to be willing to take some risks with people. And we also have to get good at understanding what is acceptable risk. But if you're making loans that are just as safe as the bank, who has to live by certain regulations, you're going to deny a whole bunch of young people, people that maybe have not the best credit rating. These are all groups that have tremendous entrepreneurial potential. Uh, they're not going to get in the game in your community, but in communities that do kind of figure out how to work with that form of talent, you're going to open up a whole set of doors that can be, you know, really instrumental in growing a much stronger uh, business community. But I think it's huge uh, because we've got this cultural trait where we're kind of conservers and, and we are risk adverse. And boy, if somebody new comes to town and says, I think there's room for, I mean, I just went through this in a community of, of a thousand and these were, they were newcomers. They've only been in town for 30 years. Um, <laughs> And they said, there is room in this town for a craft brewery and, and wine bar. And yeah. folks are going, are you crazy? <laughs> and, and in fact, it's been very, very successful. They put together mm -hmm. a really smart venture. We just have to be careful to not judge what we think will work or not. Let the process determine and, and take a little bit of risk. And then as it begins to demonstrate, take more risk. That creates those pathways I was talking about earlier. I know something I wanted to get get at was you have a lot of information to share through E2 and, and other platforms that are really important to, um, I know we don't often, we may not be rural like Nebraska. I think we talked about this before where, you know, you got 4,000 people and then you drive two hours and that's the next group of people you find. Okay. Um, you know, we do have little cluster communities here that are, you know, 20 minutes away from each other, but we are rural and there's a lot of these things apply to same, same mindset, same values, same work ethic, all those things um, we have going on here. Um, I did want you to speak to the four essentials of rural community prosperity framework, because there is a whole way of thinking about rural prosperity, you know, I, which I appreciate <laughs> just the whole concept that we don't, we didn't pick this, we didn't pick this place to be here to be unsuccessful or not prosperous. Um, we picked the small homey feel of this and we want all of those other things too. So um, if you can, if you don't mind yeah, in your best way, talk about those four um, pieces of that framework and how, how a rural community can use that um, as they grow. You bet. And just for your listeners, uh, we do have the paper on this if they are inclined to read more. And there's also, we just released as part of the Kauffman Annual Entrepreneurship Summit, uh, the first uh, edition of the Ord Nebraska story, which speaks to a place that has become one of these prosperity communities over their journey spans about 50 years. But in the last 20 years, they've really moved in that direction. So, and, and it really goes back to some work we did with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the Nebraska Community Foundation, the Heartland Center for Leadership uh, Development. Uh, Rick Foster with the Kellogg Foundation challenged us and said, what are the, the, the primary pillars for rural community success? And so we brought together a, a pretty robust group of people and began to say, well, there's four foundational pieces. Uh, you got to have good leadership. Philanthropy is really important. Uh, youth engagement and attraction is really important because in most of rural America, we've been use, losing youth. 
And we need to create a better economy, and we believe entrepreneurship is a way to do that. So over the years, that kind of hometown competitiveness framework has evolved in what we call our uh, prosperity communities. And in that case, we're saying, um, you know, there are these essentials. One is quality of place matters. I mean, people intuitively know that. Housing stock, uh, do you have an inviting downtown, parks, you know, walkability, all those kinds of things. And we think that's really uh, increasingly important as people who are mobile are saying, you know, maybe this isn't going to look like um, Chicago, um, but is there a genuine place here and a quality of life that is attractive to me? Uh, So that's number one. Uh, The second Mm -hmm. essential is really around this idea that since we, in most cases, have had little growth or we've been losing people and we don't have the best uh, demographic health, people attraction, uh, development, and retention becomes really important. And and chances are, if, if we engage in that, the people we're attracting, uh, even if they're our own kids, are going to be different than us. They're going to have different perspectives, different values. Heaven forbid they might vote differently than we do or go to a different church. Oh, my church. gosh. Yeah, I know. And And so how do we create, you know, these kind of magnetic communities where not only our own kids want to come back to, but other people who are looking for that lifestyle want to come to, knowing that we've got these, you know, mega trends nationally with 30-year-olds and boomers moving back to rural places. And the third piece is um, we've got to create a more competitive and diversified economy. I mean, one reason that rural America has struggled is too often we're dependent on one or two industries, a large manufacturing plant or agriculture, if you go west, mining and timber. And when those industries are in contraction or are shut down, it just devastates the community because there's not much else to fall back on. And we believe that entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is a way to create that kind of more diversified economy. But it also means it creates a wider range of career choices. Entrepreneurial ventures, I mean, they're going to have need for people who work in marketing and communications and production and logistics. I mean, they just create a much wider range of um, uh, vocations and careers, which really helps with the people attraction. And if we do those three things right, and, and this is where the org story is so powerful, we're going to build capacity in the community. And that takes us back to that HTC model. We're going to build leadership. We're going to build more uh, effective development organizations. And of course, the real neat thing is we're going to create community wealth and that's going to grow our philanthropic sector. And so, uh, We've been using this framework for about a decade, um, kind of coming out of the hometown competitiveness piece. And we just find that people really connect to it. It makes Mm -hmm. sense to them. Uh, Again, it's more complicated than just these four buckets, but um, you can begin to say, okay, yeah, I believe parks are important. Well, you're right, parks are important and they fit in that quality of life placemaking piece. And uh, that allows people to kind of come together and say, I'm going to work on this part of the equation and some other group's going to work on other parts of the equation. But if you can do all three of those well, it creates a reinforcing uh, environment that's going to enable the community to be much more successful and 
And what our org study shows is this community has gone from crisis and being very poor uh, to a community that is really thriving, um, very resilient, very diversified. And it now shows up in their household wealth numbers. It's a wealthier community because the vast majority of people are doing better. Some of those things, I see the um, diversification idea then, you know, there's a lot of comments that I hear um, here. We don't have a lot of uh, diversity of, of job income level or salary level, and that would provide that sort of yeah, jobs at all levels and yeah. attracting families back um, or just retaining families that we have here. I, the other thing I like about this too, Don, is that it seems to be rather purposeful. So we don't just like fall down the stairs one day and all of a sudden, you know, everything's better because <laughs> we hit our head real hard. <laughs> but the purposeful moving forward um, and purposefully investing um, our time and finding these pieces that help move our community forward. So, well, and it, it seems too that they're they're also that they're complementary. If you do too well, it makes a third easier, right? So if the people in the place are doing well, then the economy is doing better. And if you're doing, you know, the economy and capacity building, then it's easier to focus on place. Is it interchangeable and, and complementary pieces? Yeah, absolutely. No, you've got it. And and that's why it gets you into this kind of progressive cycle of development, because you're incrementally making the community just a much better place that's more attractive. And, and, um, and that's what's neat about the model. I mean, it only took us 40 years to kind of figure this out, but um, maybe it has some value. <laughs> I think it's been, uh, it's been baking for 10 years, so maybe we should yeah. crack it open here, see what we can do. <laughs> well, people relate to it, and I think it validates what they kind of intuitively know, but they never, mm -hmm. to your point, they've never had the intentionality of saying, okay, as a community, we need to be thinking about how we invest in all of these areas. And then how can philanthropy support this? How can our development organizations support this? What's the role of the city and the county? You know, it then becomes very granular as to how do you mobilize your community to actually uh, bring about change that's it's going to move you down this road. I think that just in the last 12 months-ish, our organizations, um, Economic Development and the Community Foundation have developed a, a working relationship realizing that um, it's going to take public and private dollars and philanthropic dollars to make things move forward in our communities that, you know, part of breaking down those silos that we have is will be all of us working together, including elected officials and the leadership in our communities. And it'll take a, a chunk from all three of us to um, continue to move forward because it gives everyone then a chance to be um, an owner in how we move our community forward, which I'm the more the merrier. Yeah. Everyone gets the t-shirt and stickers. That, like we're all in it. We're all going to do it together. <laughs> it's neat that you 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 are collaborating. That you're you're building those relationships because in communities we look at, that's key. It's just it's just key because um, you can't do it alone. And if you mobilize all of these assets in an intentional way, you can just really do some amazing things. Well, and you know, one of the things that Bree and I have realized, and I think. You know, this podcast is a, sort of the product of that is that there's, a, you know, we do economic development and Bree does a lot of uh, philanthropy. What's left in the middle in our community is not really being worked on a lot is community development. 
um, and our community doesn't have the resources to support its own community development organization. We don't have the time for <laughs> us to be separately doing community development work on a regular basis. And so how do we build that capacity to get those things done in our community? And, you know, at least in the immediate sense, it seems like, you know, that partnership is, is, what, is what we do to achieve that and start moving forward. Yeah, and I think if we want to draw a lesson from that org case study that I, I've referenced mm -hmm. a couple of times, early on, so their turning point was was 2000. You know, in the 1970s, they were in kind of steady decline. In the 1980s, there was the farm crisis, and they really got hammered, had a lot of conflict, uh, nearly lost their hospital. Uh, beginning in the 1990s, they started looking for what they could do. That small group of people came together and says, we've got to do something. And 2000 was that pivot point. And one of their first investments was in a leadership program. And it, it was what Rick Foster would call leadership development for a purpose. How are folks going to go back into the community and provide leadership? They now have a through the foundation, a world-class leadership program in this community of 2000. It kind of speaks, you know, to your point that what's happened now is they've they've energized these groups of people that now have agency. So when a group of people came together and say, instead of closing the local swimming pool, let's build a million and a half dollar water park. You know, the city couldn't swing all of that. Yeah. Um, but that group of people had the agency to come together and say, okay, here's what the city can do. They can donate the land where the old pool was. Um, they can provide some support. They worked with the foundation. They found donors that cared. They got some grants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, within three years, they did the ribbon cutting on this uh, million dollar plus uh, water park. So I, I really love that model because what it says is through that leadership program, there are folks who can look out and say, we need this. And then they can organize and because they have relationships with other players, begin to figure out solutions to move things forward to address those needs or wants. Uh, so I think in all of this, empowering local folks to become leaders and community builders is just huge, as opposed to saying, well, the city should just do that. Well, the city should be part of it. The county maybe <laughs> should be part of it. Uh, you guys should maybe be part of it. But ultimately, there's a much wider set of solutions if you've got people who are empowered and smart and feel like, okay, we can put this together and make it happen. And in the org study, there are literally dozens of those examples. You know, for its size, it is just a really neat community from its cultural center to um, uh, these other assets that contribute to quality of life, but they also have probably one of the uh, most dynamic economies, at least in the rural uh, Great Plains, in the central part of the rural Great Plains. So I hear what I'm hearing Don say is that we should probably partner and build a million dollar water park. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the idea, you know, building into that leadership, I think our, our communities are recognizing um, the need for that and that things are shifting and changing. And I find I find it positive that there are more people at the table recognizing needs and reaching out and saying, hey, don't you think 
this is something we can do and and you know realizing that we're just not going to sit around and wait for the city to do it or sit around and wait for someone else to figure it out that that's something we all have the power to participate in absolutely i think it changes the dynamic to say we're we're not going to just expect somebody else to do it now we may expect you to come to the table and be part of Mm -hmm. it if it's a relevant role for you we feel strongly enough about it that we're going to take that on and we feel like we have the skills now and the connections to make it happen boy those are powerful forces when people can come together in that kind of organic way to say, um, uh, our community needs trails. So we're going to build an amazing trail network in our community. So we have walkability and bikeability, but driven by people who are passionate enough to do the work to figure out how to make that happen. You know, I think this might, this could be a little too abrasive on my part, but isn't that sort of like the difference between complaining and change is, (laughs) (laughs) and, and this is something I get, and Bree would tell you, I get frustrated with some people in the community sometimes about is, you know, identifying problems is really great, but <laughs> what, what, are we, what are we going to do about them, right? And uh, how are we going to fix that and, and bring people to the table? And I think sometimes, you know, in rural, I just, in rural communities, it just seems like it's worse because there's less people. Um, it's really the same everywhere. Um, but that, you know, so many times people are caught up in just identifying what the issues are, not trying to bring a group of people together to try to, to try to fix that or expecting that, you know, the mayor is just going to know that that's what you want and that's what <laughs> needs to happen, right? And if they don't identify that, then, you know, they're, they're not doing a good job when really they're, they've probably identified something else and that's what they're working on. Yeah, and I think that's one reason why some rural communities have gotten away from doing visioning because at the end of the day, it, it was, okay, tag, you're it. You need to solve this, and we're not going to take any responsibility. And it's just unhealthy. So it's very different. You're absolutely right to through a leadership program, through you know modeling of behavior, to say if 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 a group of people feel really passionate about something, and the same is true with an entrepreneur. We don't know which entrepreneur is going to be successful or how successful, but if they feel passionate enough to make those commitments then let's work with them. And, and as they demonstrate that they can get further down the road, then let's support them more. It's the mm-hmm. same principle with community development within this kind of model that, I've been, that we've been talking about. Uh, and it just brings a whole lot more of the community into finding those solutions versus expecting a few folks, a few organizations to just get it done. You, you've got another, and we will share all of this in the podcast notes because mm-hmm. I think that ORD example is a great, a great story to read about that community as well as some of these other documents you shared with me about, you know, you know, being a great uh, supportive um, entrepreneur environment as well as the next thing. I know that E2 has identified some trends coming out of this pandemic for rural communities and some things that we should probably be prepared for and be ready to shift. So you have said we're looking at, and we've seen it. If you look at our housing market and if you talk to our small towns, they can't keep houses on the market. We are seeing people move here because they're scared to be in cramped places where they get sick faster. <laughs> so um, we see people moving back and they need a place to be. And so what are some things that you've identified that our rural communities can be aware of as we move forward out of this um, into 2021 and 22 here? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a whole set of things, but I think there's five that are really relevant for rural communities. We really began to think about this coming out of the Great Recession a decade ago. I mean, who would have thought that we would have two major crises within a decade? We, we, we are. We noticed that these trends were already at work before the Great Recession. We saw them accelerate during the Great Recession, and we think they're going to further accelerate coming out of the pandemic recession. And so... Uh, one of the things we saw was a rise in what we call necessity entrepreneurs, people who didn't necessarily say, when I grew up, I want to be an entrepreneur and own a business. But, you know, maybe they were in Chicago, lost their job, or they needed to come back to take care of parents, and they needed to find a way to make a living, and they're kind of thrust into that space. And we just saw a huge surge in that. Uh, and again, these are kind of interrelated, the reinforcing trends. And what we found is that after the wage and salary part of the economy got better, not all those folks that were kind of uh, driven into this necessity entrepreneurship left. They found that I like this, I'm pretty good at it, and I'm going to stay. And so it really expanded the entrepreneurial base in a lot of communities across the United States. So that, that was the kind of the first trend. The second is this remote work, which the pandemic has just really highlighted. But I mean, this has been at play for a long time. We now realize, and a lot more employers realize, that you don't necessarily have to come into a central place all the time to be a good employee. We think that given particularly the pandemic recession, this is going to be a real choice. We're already seeing companies going, do I really need 20,000 feet of commercial space? Maybe we can, you know, have more people uh, uh, working from where they want to work, uh, maybe come in once a week, twice a week, um, and use our space differently to, uh, you know, still build teams and do all those things that are best done in person. And so we think that we're going to see just a huge uptick in that. And it's, it's going to last beyond the pandemic, not for everyone, but for, for certain right. folks. The third trend is something that really began to accelerate during the Great Recession. Uh, again, like all these that preceded it, but this is outsourced work. Large corporations from the federal government to the Defense Department to, you know, Fortune 500 corporations have said, we really want to keep a lid on our legacy wage and salary employees. We, we want to we be leaner, uh, but we still have things that need to get done. And so we're going to do that through contracting with other companies or contracting with employees. And, you know, for those that are not having to be close to where that employer is, that means they can live almost anywhere, be part of that economy. And that that's really powerful. So you kind of couple this remote work, entrepreneurship, outsourced work together. That means you've got the potential to really bring people back home or new people into your community, and they're going to bring economy with them. And they're going to bring a more diversified economy with them. And then, you know, again, we talked about it before, but these two uh, migration trends that Dr. Ben Winchester from the University of Minnesota speaks about and has done remarkable work on, and that's the, the returning 30-year-olds and now the returning boomers in retirement. 
Now, there's a couple of things that are really critical if communities are going to take advantage of these four trends besides just acknowledging them. One is broadband is huge. I mean, the fact is, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, pe people are not going to come to communities that don't have that if in most cases. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, most of us are, are want indoor plumbing. You know, we're not going to go back to the way it was 100 years ago. Yep. And so that becomes huge. Exactly. I mean, it's not only just the ability to work, but think of the streaming that, you know, during the COVID, the variety of entertainment we could get that, because we yep. couldn't go out, the various mm -hmm. platforms that we could get. I mean, it's all kind of helped to stay sane during these difficult times. The other thing, and I think this is the tougher one, and, and you guys have already talked about it, and that is, how do you create a genuinely welcoming community? Because the chances are good that right. these folks that are coming back are going to be different than us. And Absolutely. it's not enough to just say, we're going to tolerate you. I mean, nobody wants to just be tolerated. <laughs> It's like, okay, yeah, you've got a different religion. You may be looked at different than me. You have different values. I mean, whatever the difference is, are you willing to say, we're going to see that as an opportunity and an asset, not a threat to our way of life? And of course, this is heightened right now in our, our current environment. And so folks that are moving back to rural are really being careful to find communities that are truly welcoming and uh, you know you're not gonna have to live there for a hundred years before they'll accept you uh, into the community <laughs> and say okay yeah we respect that you're different than us but you're a great person what's neat about that though is when communities kind of step back and are challenged with that it's not easy but they begin to make changes because if you really want to thrive this is one of the trade-offs is you've got to embrace the diversity that our country is and the fact that if it's coming to rural America, it's going to go to communities that are going to say, you know, the doormat's out. You're welcome. We'll accept you for who you are and uh, we'll give you a fair shake in this community to be successful. You know, some communities will meet that test. Others will not. But uh, to me, broadband and this welcoming community concept are foundational if you're going to take advantage of these four very large trends that could really make a difference in rural communities across America. And I would almost argue that the whole welcoming community thing is is harder than broadband, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> we 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 are you know in Rensselaer and in Jasper County as a whole, we've been really fortunate to have this public art movement over the last two years and it's mm -hmm. been really really awesome it's been really cool to see and it has i think in a lot of ways made our community look from the outside more welcoming welcoming public art you know murals these displays they make it feel like it's a community where you can be accepted where you can be diverse and it's been really interesting because there's been a lot of tension in that and that um you know some of the people who have been here for a long time have perceived it as otherwise is you know i think this is one of the comments that we heard about this one time was that it made our community look like it was full of homos and democrats and and that that sort of perception getting around that and and finding a way that it doesn't our community doesn't make our community look like it's full of homos and democrats it makes it look like we're diverse and welcoming and and, and growing right and so how how do you change that 
narrative internally to where people realize that this is what growing communities look like. It's almost e- it's almost easier to say, well, why don't we just build a forty million dollar <laughs> broadband project than it is to try to convince people generationally that you know public art doesn't mean that you voted blue. <laughs> it, it means that it, it, it means that. Um, our community is is becoming uh, sustainable in the long run. Well, and I think the point you're making is really important. Again, going back to Ord, one of their um, strategies has been arts and humanities Mm because their belief is if we can create a safe space where people come together, where kids from different families spend time together in addition to what they do in the school, and we begin to get to know people at a personal level, those artificial barriers that are kind of in our both intentional and unintentional biases that we have, those those start to get moderated and, and people go, well, you know, I really like these people. And yeah, they may have characteristics that would have caused me pause before. I mean, we always joke uh, in the, where I grew up as a kid, you know, um, the battle between Lutherans and Catholics, you know, and it's like you would have thought we were still fighting the Hundred Years' War. And it's like, but once you get to know each other at a personal level, it's like, you know, we're more similar than different. We may have somewhat different values or orientations, but, and I think the arts can be a real powerful mechanism to break down those barriers and uh, uh, allow people to get to know people, particularly for new residents, to get to know existing residents at a personal level. And uh, I really do believe that accelerates uh, the community's uh, openness to becoming a welcoming community. I know for sure that um, Ren Art Walk and the now expanding arts in uh, the Remington community and and soon to be DeMott community, Mm -hmm. that is something we all take a whole new level of pride of place you know, not just pride in our our agricultural place, but pride of mm-hmm. other of other things we do, and I think that's part of the reason the partnership here and the podcast is, you know, how can we change the narrative of how we talk about where we live um, and the things we say about that? Because at the end of the day, um, I don't I don't ever want someone to feel like there's insiders and outsiders, but that you know we're neighbors, all of us. Uh, regardless of our community, that's, you know, a 20-minute drive either direction from the center. And, you know, we're, we're neighbors. And for us to thrive, we all have to work together and, and be proud of those things. So I think, I think it's all an invitation <laughs> for a group discussion and for experiencing something new. It's not, those, are, those things are never a threat. And, but that's some convincing. I'll just keep using that word. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and this this is hard work. I mean, yep. changing culture, um, getting people comfortable uh, with change. I mean, this is this has always been hard. If it's essential for the success of the community, and people come to believe that, then their willingness to stretch themselves. Maybe not everyone, but enough people in the community are willing to do that to create a different environment, uh, make different decisions, make different investments that allows the community to move forward. And um, to me, that's where the battle line between success and defeat occurs is, you know, can you get a, a working majority of people who go, 
yeah, this is important. So we're, I'm going to work at it personally, but I'm also going to work at it at a community level to uh, uh, see if we can't do better. And um, uh, I think for outsiders, that's all they're asking for is, is just a shot at uh, being accepted for who they are. And, and uh, you know, if they're doing you know, some kind of back office work that nobody understands, you know, don't think they're selling drugs, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you know, take the time to ask them and that's learn about what they do. A lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of back office work. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Done. Thank awesome. you. This is awesome. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation about Jasper County for anything related to the podcast or information about today's conversation, you can email Bree and I at rootsandgraffiti at jaspercountyin.com, all spelled out. And there will also be links in the show notes below. Thanks, guys.